In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Sorry, we're having some technical issues, but God willing, it'll be sorted out. Um, so this time is the, the last week that we're going to be discussing the book of Joshua. We finished the entire book. We have two chapters left for this week, chapters 23 and 24. Um, last time, we covered many chapters. Um, this last part of the book, there's been a lot of like descriptions of ge geography and names, um, so we've gone kind of quickly through it. There was a description of all of the boundaries um, that th all of the different tribes of Israel had received. There was also a description of the cities of refuge. Does anyone remember what the cities of refuge are? Right, so these were cities that were spread out throughout the, the, the whole country. And if somebody had committed some involuntary crime, like killing someone by accident, they would flee there in order not to, uh, you know, if, if, the, if the family, let's say, of that person who had been killed is seeking revenge, they would be kind of spared, their life would be spared and they would be protected. And we said about how um, God had commanded that the people would stay there in those cities until such time that the high priest dies. And the high priest is a symbol of Christ, and how like at the death of Christ brought forgiveness and reconciliation, restoration of the people, so also the people who had fled to these cities of refuge would be allowed to leave and come back and rejoin the rest of the society after the death of the high priest. We also spoke about the cities of the Levites, which were the cities where um, the priests would dwell and, and the other Levites that would be uh, responsible for the tabernacle, um, and this gave the easy access of the people to the priests. Um, we also spoke about how the two and a half tribes that were given inheritance on the east side of the Jordan, that um, Joshua allowed them, now having completed you know, all of these battles, they, he allowed them to go and to take uh, ownership of their inheritance again um, on that side of the Jordan. Uh, and uh, essentially releasing them from the promise that they had made of they would go in to fight with the rest of the tribes before they return back and to take the inheritance. Also, the very last thing we had covered last time was that these two and a half tribes, they had set up an altar that was identical to the altar that was um, in the, the tabernacle. And um, the re rest of the tribes consider this to be uh, like an act of rebellion against God and against them because there was only one place where they were supposed to offer sacrifice. Um, and uh, and, and so they came to attack them, actually. They, came, they, they wanted to attack them. And so they met together, and they said, no, the reason we set up this altar is because in, in following generations, we don't want the Israelites to think that the, their, the, the two and a half tribes that lived on the other side of the Jordan were like some completely different race of people and attacked them. But this way, by having the altar, not to use it as an altar, but just as a kind of a memorial and to set it up as a, as a proof that we are also of the same people as you because our altar is the same as your altar. So they accepted that reasoning uh, and, uh, and, and, and kind of they, they brought peace again. That's kind of where um, we left it last time. Starting in uh, chapter 23, we, we see now like the end of the life of Joshua and he is you know bidding farewell um, to all of the people. So it says, Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about, that Joshua was old, advanced in age. 
And Joshua called for all the is for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in age. I have seen all the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. So we see that here at the end of his life, Joshua's main focus is not kind of on his own health or his own life, but it's on, again, the mission that he had been called for, where he is focusing on the people and on the future um, of, of what is going to happen to the people. Uh, and he's saying, um, you know, remember, like, remember, you've seen all the things the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you, for the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. So, again, like, like Moses also was this way, like, before the death of Moses, the focus of Moses, again, was on, uh, you know, delivering to the people like the f his final message, his final blessing, his final commandment, his final warning, like reminding them how is it that they should live. Um, so we should also like remember, right? We should always be remembering what is it that God has done for us, just as Joshua is saying here to the people. Sometimes when we go through like droughts or struggles or problems, especially big problems, it's easy to forget all of the times that God has been faithful, right? All the times that God has gotten us through difficult situations or previous times where we felt like there was just darkness and bleakness and there was no hope and there was no way out and, 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 and that somehow here we are, we've gotten through it, we've gotten past it and that God has provided a way. So, so here he's saying, remember all of the times where God fought for you all the times that God gave you victory over all these nations, because now as Joshua is leaving, and this is a problem that the Israelites had, is that they, you know, they associated victory and success with a person or with a, or with a thing, right? So previously when Moses was there, they found comfort in Moses, right? And then when Moses died, the people were, you know, anxious, and then God established Joshua and made it clear that Joshua is the successor of Moses. And just as God was with Moses, so also he would be with Joshua. And they began to see how God was working through Joshua and he was still granting them success and so on. And so they again found comfort in Joshua. And now that Joshua is leaving, who is going to come to replace Joshua? And does this mean that because Joshua is leaving, that God is no longer going to work? that God is no longer going to be with us, no longer going to protect us. So here Joshua, knowing that this is kind of their anxiety and their fear, he is telling them ahead of time, um, remember all that God has done. See, I have divided to you uh, by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. So he's telling them, I, I remember all the inheritance that has been divided to each of you. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. So, so what is he saying here? So here in this verse, in verse 4, he says, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance. But then he's saying, and the Lord your God will expel them from before you. So what is he what what is the order that things are happening here? What is he saying? Yes, he is dividing the land before they even conquer it. Right? So previously when we saw the map 
that showed, and, and maybe we've all seen m similar maps that show like all of the region, all of the Israel, and it's broken up into all these regions, okay? And he had already broken up all the land into these regions, and we went through in great detail all the geography of that. Um, but even as he is dividing all of this land, right, they had not yet conquered the land. Like they had not yet actually taken possession of the land. And, and you know, typically when you have like a human endeavor, like let's say you had a country is taking over another country, and they don't know how much of it they're going to be able to take over. Like they're just trying to capture as much land as possible. You wait until you capture the land, and then you decide, okay, how am I going to divide the land? Like now it's my land, I'm going to divide it how I see fit based on the land that I have. People don't begin to divide land that they do not yet own, right? Like like you, you, you typically do it the other way. You, you first capture the land, now you're sure of what you have, and then you divide, okay? The fact, though, that here that the land has been divided before even the people conquered it says something. It says that we are so sure and that God is sending us this message saying, all of this land is going to be yours. You don't even have to like consider it. I've already appointed the areas of land that is currently being dwelt in by these other nations. I've already appointed it for you, not just in this just very vague general sense, because, I mean, for all of history, like God has been telling the Israelites that this is going to be their land and that they were going to inherit it and so on, kind of in this general sense, they're going to inherit it. But now he's like going very specific and he's saying here are the specific regions that each tribe will live in and will have. And so some of these lands, right, had not yet even been conquered yet and already they are appointed and apportioned for the tribes. So it says something about like God is, knows. God knows this is what's going to happen. God knows this is, this is the intention of God. From the very beginning, this is what God is, is working toward and what he has already decided ahead of time will be. And so in faith, the people are dividing this land, you know, for others, right? And, and, and again, like, like when, when, you, when you think of like a battle that has not yet happened, you know, maybe we, we don't know whether we're going to win or lose. But here they say, no, we will win. Like we are sure to win because God is with us, fighting with us. And he's already told us which parts of the land will belong to us. Okay, so God is again, Joshua is telling them, God will continue to expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. So even though Joshua is dying now and he will not be with them any longer, but God is with them the same as before. There is no change in God's work. And as we said throughout this whole chapter or this whole book about it shows us the, the, the kind of the synergy of work between God and man. So also God will continue to do his part of his work, even if Joshua is not present. OK. Um, we see this principle being played out in many times in the history of Scripture and in the history of the church. So, for instance, you see that there are times where many, many famous prophets were very prominent and were preaching, and like Isaiah the prophet, for instance. Well, there was a time where Isaiah actually was killed, but the people of God continued. There was a time where we had Jeremiah the prophet, but then after Jeremiah died, the people of God continued. You know, all of the major figures, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joseph, all of the major figures that God uses um, for a time during their life to accomplish great things, 
that we celebrate them and we remember their work and we remember their faith, but there was an end to their life and their, their life, you know, their work ended. But the work of God did not end. It continued. And so God like interweaves, right, all his will throughout all the fabric of history so that whether in one period, in one age, there's a certain person or group of people that are kind of like, you know, leading the charge in the fulfillment of God's will. And then in the next generation, there is a different person. And the next generation, there's a different person. And so God doesn't cease to work, even though the people completely change. And when you think about it, like, say, every hundred years or so, the entire population of the earth changes, right? There's nobody who remains from the previous generation, right? Completely gone. God is working with a 100% new group of people, right? And yet he continues to do his will, continue to do his work, continues to propel everything um, forward just as before. When, for instance, a church is destroyed, you know, or, or, or set on fire or, or people are killed or martyred or whatever, that doesn't end the work of God and it doesn't end the church. You know, like the church, for instance, continued even in the midst of like very, very intense persecution and destruction. And, you know, there were periods of time for years where um, in Egypt, for instance, where the church was commanded to not even be allowed to have liturgies and no one could even go and attend the church. And yet even during those times, God continued to work and the church eventually was opened again and everything continued. Um, it reminds us of the verse in, in Romans where St. Paul is saying, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, if God is with us, who can be against us? Right? If God is working, nothing can stop his work. What we see around us are as obstacles. We see them as difficulties. We th see them as things that like, are, are, are preventing the work of God. But in the eyes of God, these things are not really obstacles. They're not roadblocks for him. There is no such thing as a roadblock for God. There's nothing that slows him down. Everything is taken into account. You know, maybe even like in our society, you know, we always talk about how like things are getting so bad and, 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 and you know, all of like the, the philosophy of the world and the blindness of the people and all the bad things that are happening and the things that people want to change in our society and whatnot. For us as human beings, it's easy for us to kind of get concerned about all these things and get worried about it and question, like, where is God in all this? Why is God not putting an end to those people who stand against him, who defame him, who blaspheme him, who deny him, who, who work against him, who destroy the people of God? Why is God not stopping them? Why is God not putting an end to them? And I can't say that I have a direct answer to that question. Like, I, I can't point and say, yes, I know exactly why God is allowing such to happen. But we can say that we trust in God's providence. We trust in his wisdom. We trust in what he's allowing. And we trust that even though we see all these things around us, that God is still in complete control, right? God is still the one fighting the battles. And even when it appears like the church is losing in some aspect, it doesn't mean that it's a loss, right? It means that God is allowing for a period of time such things to happen. If you remember a long time ago, right, there was a time where Christianity was outlawed and anyone in, 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 in Byzantine Empire, right, Christianity was outlawed and anyone who declared themselves to be Christian was immediately killed, 
right? That was that was the real life, right? That was the real world back then. Anyone who declared themselves to be Christian would be tortured and killed. We read about these stories all the time in the Synaxarian when we read in the liturgy. But then there came a time immediately after this time where the emperor himself became Christian, where the emperor like promoted the opening of the churches again. And and that r- and that Christianity became the official religion of the kingdom. And I'm not trying to say that somehow that's what's going to happen now. But I'm saying is that just because something looks one way, even if it looks that way for a really long time, that doesn't mean that that's how it's always going to stay, right? So it's we shouldn't judge the situation by what we see around us. We judge according to the characteristics of God that we know, that he is faithful, that he is true, and that nothing can separate us from him. And even if some people choose to lead a life away from him, that doesn't mean that evil is conquering good, right? Each person is choosing for themselves, like how is it they want to live and what it is that they believe. But in the end, the church remains. The opportunity for people to have salvation remains. The opportunity for people to have communion with God remains. And that is something that God has said that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church, right? So we believe that in whatever form, in whatever way, that God is in control and whatever it is he allows He allows for a reason. Therefore, be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, and lest you go among these nations, these who remain among you. You shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. So, Here, Joshua kept talking about how God is going to be with you. Nothing is going to prevent God from fighting for you. Just as God fought for you before, he will continue to fight for you. And he's speaking about all the things from God's perspective as, here's the faithfulness of God, here's the power of God at work, right? But now he's turning his attention to, well, what are the conditions? What are the things that we have to do in order to experience this, you know, providence of God, to experience this, protection of God to, to, to so that God will continue to go out and fight with us what is it that I have to do and this is now he, what he's saying and everything that he is saying is speaking about our relationship to God right he says what be strong be very courageous and keep to do all that is written in the book of the law right he's saying he's saying the success that you are going to experience is not going to be based on whether Joshua me am I alive or not it's going to be based on how you continue in your walk with God. Are you going to be faithful to him? Are you going to obey him and submit to his will? If so, then he will continue to be faithful and he will continue to fight for you as before. But if you stop doing this, as we have seen right previously when we talked about like the attack on the city of Ai, you will lose. You will lose even the simplest war. You know, I, I, I feel like sometimes some of the things that are happening in our society are so clearly, clearly flawed like it doesn't require a lot of thought or analysis to determine if they are flawed. It doesn't, it doesn't re- they are just so clearly against logic, the things that are happening. And yet we find people who don't see this. Like, they, like to them it seems like this is the right way. This is the, the correct way. The things should be done. And they are convinced that this is the correct way. And this is a reflection of like, like, a, like, some, like a darkening of the mind. You know, like the mind has been so warped to where even the things that are clear cannot be seen. 
the things that are light, it's like we're staring right into the light and we can't see the light. And we think that darkness is light, right? So, so here, this is a result of continual disobedience for God's commandments, continu continual rejection of God. So here he's saying, follow the word of God. And he's saying what? Be very courageous to keep and do all that is written. You know, and it's interesting that he used the word courageous because it says something about what is required really for us to follow the commandment of God as it requires courage. And you might not think that that word is the first word that comes to mind when we think about what does it take to follow God's commandments. I mean, maybe we speak about knowing the commandments of God, okay? We think about self-discipline, right? Like I have to be disciplined. I have to have faith, right, to follow God's commandments. Like those are maybe are the more typical words that we would use to describe like following God's commandments and what does it take. But here he's speaking about courage, right? Where does courage come into the idea of following the commandments of God? Okay, so number one, you need courage to go against what everyone else is doing, right? Because the commandments of God were given to the Israelites and only the Israelites. So they were a minority of the people on the earth, right? So, so to them, they were called to live a certain way. They were called to eat certain foods, not eat other foods. They were called to have periods of fasting, feasting. They were called to follow certain laws like the Ten Commandments and all these other laws. They had all these different laws and, 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 and customs and things that they were called to do, things that were lawful and things that were not lawful. And their society and culture was driven by God and his commandments. Everything about what they did was based on something God had said, right? But none of the other societies, none of the other nations around them were like them, right? No, no, nobody else looked like them in terms of how they lived their life, how they practiced, right? The importance of what they did. So they were under a lot of pressure. One of the reasons that God kept telling them, kill all the nations around you is because so they're not like a constant snare to you to get you to fall into sin. So... It took courage, and it takes courage for them to live according to their principles, even though everyone else around them sees this as being unnecessary or don't understand it. So also for us, courage, like we have to have courage because without courage, how are we going to live in our world, in our society, in our country, you know, holding fast to the things that we believe unless we are courageous. If I am timid, then I will fold quickly. If I'm timid, then I'm afraid of other people even knowing what it is that I believe or what it is that I do or standing up against someone who is criticizing my faith. That would be very hard for me if I didn't have courage. A person without courage cannot last very long in the faith because the moment that any resistance happens, the moment that any sacrifice is required, the moment that there's any kind of like, like pain that I experience as a result of the faith that I have, I will quickly cower right in fear because i am afraid because i'm not courageous right this is what he is saying is be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of moses also we have to be courageous if we are going to be persecuted right if we are going to be explicitly punished for the faith that we believe in whether social persecution or physical persecution or legal persecution or whatever type of persecution, whatever, again, suffering we experience at the hands of other people because of our faith, again, if we have no courage, then it's very easy for me to just say, you know, it's not worth it. 
Like, why why would I suffer such pain when it's so easy for me to just say, yes, okay, I'll bow down to the idol, you know? Just like the, the three young youth who were asked to bow down before the idol that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they said, no, we will not bow to your idol. You know, the consequence was being thrown in the furnace. And they were willing to be thrown in the furnace. I think one of the things that, as a church, we suffer from in our age is that not enough of us are willing to be thrown in the furnace. As much as that sounds harsh and difficult, but honestly, throughout all of history, that's the only way that Christianity has survived. Christianity has survived on the backs of those who were willing to be thrown in the furnace because there was no time where Christianity was simply just accepted and that everyone did not, there was no temptation whether spiritual or physical. There was no time where the church was not attacked. There was no time where each of us individually and spiritually were not attacked. There was no time where we just simply live completely in peace and that there is no war. There has always been war. There's always some kind of war against the church as a whole, against us as individuals, whether in persecution or just temptation, like spiritual temptation we experience to sin, to fall. Those who are courageous are willing to endure that pain you know, there's even a pain of resisting temptation is a pain. There's pain. Like my flesh is telling me, do something. My thoughts are consumed with an idea or my emotions are raging about something. And that, because of my faith, I say, no, this is not right. What, what my flesh is telling me to do is wrong. This is courage for me to stand against it. And the voices in my head are saying, like, you have to give in. Because if you don't give in, all, the, all that's going to happen is these feelings are going to intensify and these thoughts are going to intensify and you will never have rest and you must, f you must give in, right? Like this is the voice of Satan telling us you must give in. The ones who are courageous are the ones who stand against this. Those who are courageous are the ones who turn to God and say, God, help me because I want to stand. I don't want to cower or, or in fear. I don't want to run away. Those are the courageous ones. Um to continue to fight without giving up. It takes courage to repent. It takes courage to admit that I was wrong. It takes courage to continue to walk forward even after I have failed a thousand times before. That takes courage. A person who, you know, is a timid person, is a frightened person, why would I get up and continue to try again? It's much easier for me to just go back again, go back. You know, why would I, why would I continue trying to push forward? Why would I continue trying to be saints? like a saint? Why would I continue fighting for a virtue? Why would I continue like fighting against a passion that I have? Why would I continue to confess a sin that I've s confessed so many times before? It takes courage to do that, right? Someone who is not afraid. And the thing with courage as well is courage means that I am afraid, but I move forward anyway. Like that's what courage means. If you, if you didn't experience fear, then you can't have courage, right? Like, courage is not like me drinking a sip of water from this. This is not courageous because there's no fear associated with it. Like, I'm not trying to overcome fear. I'm not trying to overcome. The courageous person is a person who is afraid, right, but moves forward anyway because they have faith, because they trust in God, right? The, the, the coward is a person who maybe experiences the same fear, but, but re the, 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 the action that they take is to stop, or to run away, not to move forward. That, that's the difference between a courageous person and a cowardly person. Not that the courageous person is fearless. They never feel fear about anything. No, the courageous person feels fear, 
but decides that they will still move forward um, and do what is right. It takes courage to teach the word of God that when we know that it will be uh, not accepted, right? When it will be mocked, when people will judge us based on what we are teaching, right? It takes courage to live according to this word in the midst of society. Um, so in many, many ways, we are called to have courage, just as Joshua here said to the people. Um, and, and, and God looks at those who have such courage. He looks at those who are able to live with courage in the midst of personal attack um, and, and rewards them. And here he's saying, be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Yes. So I feel like you can, like, like there's two types of courage. Like if I had to categorize, like one that's hidden and kind of internal and personal, and then one that's that people see and that like, I would say repentance, struggling with your own weaknesses are like the first. And then this whole like, you know, teaching the word, living it out is the second. And I think the first one's a lot easier than the second, just my opinion, because it's like between you, right? And no one knows what that courage may look like. There's no judgment on that courage. And you mentioned like the three youths in the fire and like martyrs and even modern day martyr, martyrs or whoever we read about in the Synaxarian. And that's like, it is what you said, it's very harsh. And I can't imagine someone coming up to me right now saying, you know, stop being in this church or I'm gonna throw you into a fire. Very easily, I'll just walk out of the church, right? And so how do you, but like, how do we even walk towards being at that level in the external, realm of courage because no one's coming up to me right now and asking but I also believe it's because I would say like God knows <laughs> so again we, we don't believe that God is going to give us something beyond what we can bear but that's because he wants us to grow gradually in the smaller things gradually 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 up to the bigger things it doesn't necessarily mean that on day one a person who's a Christian is going to be able to do what you're saying, right? But there are small tests of obedience, right? There are small tests of faith. There are small things. Just like when in the parable of the talents, when the master gave the talents to the servants, he gave them some, and then those who were faithful, he gave them more, right? And that's really the whole process of spiritual growth is in that way, where at whatever level that we are, God gives us something. Again, we believe God does not give us more than what we can bear. He gives us something that we can bear. Maybe in my estimation, I can't bear this. Like this is uh, too much. The reason I believe that I can't bear it is because I'm trying to carry it by myself, right? When he says he gives us, he doesn't give us more than we can bear. It means when I am with you, carrying it with you, you can bear it. But when you try to bear it alone, no, you can't bear it. You will collapse in it. You will get mental illnesses from it. You know, like like. But when you carry it, when I carry it with you, he said, what? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the, the, the faith grows not just because we read a lot of books or we learn a lot of things. Faith grows through, like, experience, through I have a, some kind of problem and that causes me anxiety and stress and fear and worry, and yet I choose to have faith 
and to be obedient in it. I choose to have patience in it. I choose to pray to God about it. I choose to trust him with it. And then in that struggle, it's not like a straightforward thing, an up and down soul struggle. I, 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 at the end of it, I look back and I see God was with me and this God carried me through this and so on. And so that builds our faith. Then the next thing builds our faith. And the next thing builds our faith. You know, the people who are martyrs that we read about are martyrs. It doesn't mean that their entire life they were super faithful. You know, like they were born somehow differently genetically than everyone else and they were able to do this. God, however, even if we're not aware of all the details of their life, brought them up gradually into this, right? So so definitely um, it's a process. The other thing you said about like the internal courage versus the external courage. Like, I can't say that, you know, like how does God judge, Right? Like when Christ came and he said what, you know, when he sp spoke about adultery, for instance, and he said to the people, you have, you have always said that uh, and Moses said adultery was what? Adultery was like committing like the physical act. But now I say to you that whoever looks at a woman lustfully committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Christ did is he took the external thing and he internalized it and said actually the internal thing is what leads to the external. So if you conquer the internal, then you will conquer the external. If I can conquer the thought, then I will conquer the action, right? So don't just focus on the action, but focus on what leads you to the action, right? So the courage that I have that will keep me from lust, that will keep me fighting against lust, that will keep me fighting against pornography, that will keep me fighting against, you know, all the bad media influences that we have that will keep me fighting against so many urges that I might have, okay, that will, even even if the temptation at the time was not the physical act, it was just in my mind, um, will eventually lead to a greater victory in the external world, right? So so I can't say that, so, so I think they're very related, you know, that's what I'm trying to say, they're, they're very related to each other. Again, we don't see the great faithfulness of certain people that, you know, become well-known saints and martyrs in the church. Maybe what we see is the culmination of a lifetime of those small choices that never rose to the level of prominence that anyone could see. All, all there were was these internal actions of faithfulness that then were tested to the maximum in a, in a way where we got to see the true faithfulness of such a person um, kind of later on. So I think like we can't really separate them. They're they're very related to one another. Okay. So like in all that you've said, right, the world is approaching some sort of, you know, great evil, right? And, you know, there's all this evil in society and then also this whole spiritual journey of being tested and refined. And I think it's for me it's very easy to just see this you're going from one struggle to the next. Right. And so how do we, you know, like count it all joy? Like where is I know it's not about feelings, but like how do we not just, you know, tire out in this process? We will have joy if we identify our goal rightly. If we identify our goal rightly, meaning what? If if my goal is financial success, I will not have joy. Because maybe I'll have it, maybe I won't. If my goal is physical health, well, maybe I'll have it, maybe I won't. If my goal is peace in all my relationships, well, maybe I'll have it, maybe I won't. 
if 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 my goal is fame again maybe i'll have it maybe i won't if i set the wrong goal there is no promise of god that he will give us any of those things not only that but he is very willing and able to remove those things from us at any time to reach the higher goal and if that higher goal is our goal then we will find joy so if my higher goal if my goal is salvation is eternal life then i will see everything else as a stepping stone to that so that i can reach a point where yes some difficult challenge problem happens to me but i find peace in it because i feel like god is still working and i feel like ultimately god is using this for my salvation and that is my ultimate goal so anything that that allows us to 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 kind of reach that ultimate goal will bring joy now again it's not the same as happiness right so our problem is that we have to always keep reorienting our mind to that goal what is what are we living here for you know like when people say like maybe some very difficult thing happened to them some tragedy even and they come and they say well why did god allow this to happen to me you know i pray and i go to church and whatnot whatnot well maybe you're not understanding the goal right because god never promised that tragedies would not happen to us in life like death is is a part of tra- uh, a part of life right like every one of us will die which is a scary thing right it's not something that can be escaped but god turns that into an act of life rather than an act of death he turns it into something life-giving rather than life-ending he transformed it from something that was the end of life to the beginning of life so again if my goal is eternal life then even my own death will be something that doesn't frighten me something that doesn't bring me stress or anxiety but instead i see it for what it is you know like when when christ said like when a when a when a woman comes time for her labor right she's in a lot of labor pain and she's stressed and anxious but the moment that the baby is born she forgets all of her labor labor pains because now a baby has come into the world and this is her child and so she is joyful and that's kind of how it is like we go through the difficulties and the pain and it's real it's, it's not fabri- it's real pain and it's real suffering but for what purpose that in the end we experience like that new birth we experience that new life the thing that god is preparing for all of us and that's why for all of the stories that we hear about like people who pass from this life to the next life we hear from them about how consoled they were how comforted they were they never wanted to come back to this life ever again because ultimately the the place where they went was the place of greatest joy so if we place our focus and our eyes on that joy we will find joy because we will see that everything god is doing is leading us to that moment but if my if i try to find joy in this world and attachments in this world then i will be disappointed because there is absolutely nothing in this world that we will have forever everything and I, again i don't i don't mean to be morbid when i say this like absolutely everything we have will be taken can you name one thing that you have that will not be taken from you even your body will be taken nothing that you have here will stay so maybe again for when we think about that it's frightening but then when you think well why is god even allowing this why is he taking this he's not taking it because he wants us to lose he's actually taking it because he wants us to gain that's what the resurrection is about is he is he is saying all these things you have now 
are worthless things, right? Are temporary things, are things that are not going to last. But what I will give you instead of them is the eternal things, the things that will have no end, the things that you never have to lose again. You know, that's the life. You know, it's like trying to tell a baby that's in the womb and explain to that baby, like, what's going to happen to you in the next life? You know, I, I think probably, maybe many people, I would think that if they had the option to just live in the womb or to actually live in the world, they would say, I'd rather live in the world. Like, the world has more stuff in it. I, there's more things you can Im enjoy in it. There's more things you can experience in it. I don't want to just stay cramped up in this little womb for the rest of my life, okay, where it's dark and I can't see anything and I don't experience anything. But if you tell the baby, you know, the life that, that you're going to have after is a better life, you know, you're going to get to experience all these new things. They're not even understand what you're talking about. What do you mean? You're going to experience what? I don't know what you're talking about. doesn't even make sense to me. But in order for you to pass from this life to that life, you're going to have to go through a pretty traumatic experience called birth, right? And as much as we try to explain to the baby what is birth, they're not going to understand it. But when the time comes, it's pretty traumatic. And you see the baby crying. Like, what is happening to me? Right? But then they realize that there's a lot of things in this world that are, that are good, you know, like that we can enjoy. And that actually we were created to be able to live in this world, not to just stay in the womb forever. But just like this life is a phase, you know, the, like, like the, the pregnancy is a phase, this life is also a phase. We were not intended to be here forever. It, we're here for a time. And when you try to describe to a human being, what does it mean to pass from this life to the next? I don't know. It's, 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 it's hard to describe it and understand it. And it's frightening, right? And, and maybe we're afraid and we don't want to go forward, right? What, what is it going to be like? And what am I going to lose? You know, I'm leaving behind the life that I had and all the things I had accumulated, right? But he's saying, God, God is saying, no, just trust me. Just keep going forward. The life that, you, that I've prepared for you is a far better life than anything you've experienced. So believe, like have faith. Again, if that is my goal, then everything, I will see it as helping me, propelling me toward that goal. But if anything in this life is my goal, I will definitely lose it, and it will definitely bring sadness. Does that answer your question? For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. So again, he's speaking about how God is going to be with them when he, when he leaves them. And he says, one man of you shall chase a thousand. Like to that extent, you know, like that's how much God is going to be with you. That one person is going to be able to chase and defeat a thousand. Now, this is kind of like uh, like an analogy. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean literally that one person is going be to be able to beat a thousand people. But what he's trying to say is that you know, even if you are a small, you know, even if you are less than others and others are fiercer and stronger than you, God is still going to grant you victory over them. As we saw before, all the times where God granted victory, even to the point of making the sun stand still, even to the point of sending hailstones, even to the point of making walls fall, things that had no human component to them god did it for them beyond understanding beyond human ability god is fighting for you so do not be afraid therefore take careful heed to yourselves that you love the lord your god right and what does it mean to love you know when we say love the lord your god 
Some people, when they say the word, I love God, what does it mean? Does it mean I love what God is doing for my li- in my life right now? Does it mean I love the fact that, you know, I'm in a situation that's positive? I love that my work is good. I love that I have a good family. I love that I have health. I love, you know, those things. And that's what I mean when I say, yes, I believe God gave me these things and I love. I love God because he gave me this, this, and this. Well, what if God doesn't give us those things? Does that mean we do not love him? You know? Take heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. All, all of this is to describe what? Everything that has come before. All the things he was saying about be very courageous to keep the commandments. Right? That is the love of God. We cannot express love to God as an emotion. You know? Obviously, we as human beings experience emotions. And emotions can be a very good and powerful thing. Right? But the emotion itself is not the love. Right? The emotion, when I say I love God, and yeah. It doesn't mean I feel warmly toward him. If we feel warmly toward him, that's great. I mean, that that will help us to be even more diligent. That will help us to be more faithful. That will help us to have, you know, to to, to work harder, right? But the feeling toward him is not the love. The love is the obedience, right? Is the keeping his commandments, which is everything that Joshua has said up to this point. When he says, keep the commandments of God. Right. So so it's possible for people to be emotionally connected to God while at the same time not keeping his commandments. Right. It's possible that people choose to disregard certain commandments, but emotionally they feel like I'm happy with God and God is good. And, you know, I, 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 I love God's presence in my life. But, yeah, these certain things, I don't really want to practice these things, but I feel good about God. Does that mean that I love God? Because we can fool ourselves, right? We can fool ourselves. That is not the love. That is not the love he's talking about. The love is the submission and the obedience and the discipleship. That is love of God. Or else, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, and make marriages with them, and go into them, and they to you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given to you. So he says, like, don't be haughty and feel that you are now masters here, right? Don't feel like you like your victory is now assured and that you are kind of the, 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 the strongest people who are living here, the moment you turn away, what will happen? These people will be snares and traps until what? You perish from this land, right? You perish. Sometimes we think that what we have is our own. Like what I have is my own. The, you know, my family, like if I have a good family situation and my family is at peace, I feel like, yeah, this is what I have. I have, this is mine. You know, like I take it for granted. Uh, maybe I don't see how much God is the one actually working to make it so, right? If I have success in my work, maybe I think it's because I'm very smart or because I'm very lucky or because of whatever. I'm just happy with my situation. But maybe I forget sometimes how much God is the one who has made it so, right? And so here he's saying, if you turn from God, 
then we can't even begin to enumerate all the things that can start to go wrong in our life. Because maybe we're not even aware of the number of things that are right because of him and not because of us. Okay? Um, small sins can sometimes lead to um, a big fall. Right? When we begin to introduce things, like for instance, in the minds of these Israelites, it's like, okay, well, I mean, if I talk to the Gentiles, if I talk to them, or if I marry like from them, like what's going to happen? You know, like, is it really a catastrophe? Is it really like the worst thing that can happen? You know, and people might consider it to be something very small. But here, here God is warning them. He's saying, if you do this, then uh, Joshua's warning them. You, the God, God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, meaning the blessing of God will be taken. And when the blessing of God will be taken, we can't even begin to understand the number of things that will begin to break, right? The things that you took for granted, that where everything was working smoothly and good, will begin to break. I found this story from the Paradise of the Fathers, which can maybe like help illustrate this point. So it says this. On one occasion, when the Abba was sitting with a number of the other brethren in a certain place in the monastery, he was told that one of the monks in the monastery used to make two mats of plated palm leaves daily. That day, he placed them in front of his cell, opposite the place where the Abba was, then sitting with the brethren. He did this because he was unduly exalted with the thought of vainglory, he believed that he would be praised for such diligence because the rule of the fathers was that each monk should make one mat daily. The Abba perceived that the monk did this for the purpose of making a display and understood the intention which was stirring in the man and moving him. The Abba sighed heavily and said to the brethren who were sitting with him, See this man who toils from morning to evening? He has endowed Satan with all his labor. He has left nothing of his work for the comfort of his own soul. He has toiled much for the praise of the children of men and has not worn out his body with all this work for the sake of God. His soul is empty of work through the pleasure of him that does it, for he has loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. The Abba called that brother, rebuked him, and charged him to stand up behind the brethren when they were praying. The Abba asked him to hold the two mats and to say to them, O my brethren, I beseech you to pray for my degraded soul in order that through your prayers God may show abundant mercy uh, to it. For I have held these mats in greater honor than his kingdom. He also commanded that the man should stand up with the mats among the brethren when they were sitting at meals until they rose up from the table. He commanded likewise that after this he should be confined to his cell for a period of five months. He was obliged to make two mats daily, to eat bread and salt only, and that no man should visit him. All of that because he made two mats instead of one. So what was the reason? Well, because his motive for making the two mats was, was a prideful one. He wanted to show off that his, look at his great work, that he's making two mats. So of course we know in the monasteries and in the Desert Fathers, they're very strict and they, they, they cut out any kind of, um, you know, like the beginning of any kind of the seed of sin is destroyed so that it doesn't take root and become something even more damaging in, in life. Right? But the principle is something we can understand and apply. Something small that seems to be insignificant, that if we allow it to fester and to grow, can become something much more damaging, that then has a long-term effect and even make us blind to the fact that it's there. And this is what Joshua is, is warning them about. Don't, don't start to like, destroy the work of God that he has done for you by doing these things. 
Behold this day I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Therefore it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmless, harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given to you. So again, he's saying, like all of the good things came to you from God, but if you disobey him, again, all these things can be taken. When you have transgressed the co covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. And indeed, you, you can kind of begin to see that Joshua's tone begins to change. And he's now speaking in terms of when, not if. Because he knows that this is going to happen. And indeed, this does happen. And actually, if you read in Judges chapter 2, Judges is immediately after this book. So Judges chapter 2, it says what? Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. So this, everything that Joshua is warning them about happened. The same tone we see in the final words of Moses to the people before his own death. You know, he's recounting all the law to them, but then you begin to sense that he's speaking actually about something that is going to happen. He's saying when, when you transgress the commandments of the Lord your God. You will transgress them. And when, and when you transgress them, this is what is going to happen, right? And indeed, this is what does happen. And this is what ultimately leads to the destruction of the whole kingdom. This is what results in the exile of the northern kingdom and the exile of the southern kingdom um, in the future. Okay, last chapter. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. So he's saying, what? who was Abraham when God chose him, right? His family worshipped idols, and, 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 and yet God chose him. Like This is what St. John Chrysostom said. He says, this is my advice to you. Do not use the wickedness of our fathers as an excuse. If we are watchful, nothing of that would affect us, as even though the father of Abraham was an unbeliever, yet he did not inherit his wickedness, but became dear to God. Saying what? Sometimes people like look at their situation, right? Like my situation is such that I grew up in such and such a family. In my situation, I was not taught these good principles from a young age. In my situation, I had these things working against me. And because of that, I have an excuse. Because of that, I excuse myself into thinking that now, like, God is going to have mercy on me because of certain sins and whatnot because of my situation. But here he's saying what, of course, we believe God has mercy on us. 
But we cannot excuse our actions based on saying, like, well, look at, look at my situation where I was brought up and so on. Saying Abraham was not brought up in a, in a God-fearing family, and yet God was obedient. Er, Abraham was obedient to God. Abraham submitted his will to God. Abraham uh, like did all of these good things, even though his situation was not the best. To Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau, I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also, I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward, I brought you out. He's giving like a history of the people. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness for a long time. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand, that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. And, but I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore, he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Again, all this in the history of, of things that happened to Israel. Then you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. Also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with the sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. So again, he is saying, look at all that God has done for you. Should you not be faithful to him? Should you not obey him? Should you not submit to his will? Look at how he has supported you and your ancestors and brought them up from nothing to where you are today. All of this was because of the work of God, not because of your own work. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Your response to God, you see the love of God to you, and your response to him is obedience. Your response to him is submitting your will. It is a response. God is the initiator of love, and we are responding to his love. We see his mercy, we respond to his mercy. We see his goodness, we respond to his goodness. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. <coughs> and here it makes it very clear, like this is a choice. Right? A choice that we make every day. Choose for yourself whom you will serve. Right? And, 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 and be clear that you cannot serve multiple gods. Right? You cannot serve multiple gods. When, when Elijah the prophet was speaking to the, to the, the priests of Baal, he s it says what? And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Right? You can't mix you can't have it both ways. You can't take the parts that I like from this and the parts that I like from this and the parts that I like from this and mix them together and make your own faith, right? Saying, if you believe in God, take it all. If you believe that this is really 
the true God, the creator of heaven and earth, and that he is your creator, then that means you have to accept everything he said, whether you like it or you don't like it. And you can't just take parts of it and say, no, I don't really want this. But if you don't believe this and you believe something else, don't pretend to believe this. You know, don't, don't pretend to believe in God, but at the same time, you are taking from different aspects of other things, right? Christ said, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Also, in the book of Revelation, when Christ was speaking to condemn uh, the, the seven churches, he says, what I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Why? The person who is cold is the person who rejects it all. At least they know that they've rejected it. You know, and maybe, maybe a time later they will reevaluate that and accept it. But they have rejected it. A person who is hot is a person who has accepted it, a person who follows God. But a person who is lukewarm is trying to like be in between, right? A person who like, you know, like, yes, I believe this, but my life has no reflection of it. You know, I, I believe this, but there's big areas of my life that are problem areas and I, without any repentance, without any uh, struggle to try to overcome. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us up uh, uh, and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So... The people are telling to Joshua, after he is giving them these warnings, he's saying, no, of course we're going to serve God. Yes, God did all these things. You know, God all did all these things for us. Of course we are going to serve them. But sometimes it's easy for us to think that we will serve God. It's easy for us to think that we will do so because we are not always aware of what is entailed in such a decision. When we make a decision, say, yes, I'm going to believe in God. I believe God. I'm going to serve God. Well, what does that even mean? You know, like, what do you, what are you saying that you are going to do, right, when you say that? Because as we said, like, this is not just an emotion. It's an action. So what are you going to do because of that? You know, when Christ was speaking to the people about discipleship and what was necessary for discipleship, he said, he said this in Luke 14. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So even Christ, when he's describing discipleship, he's describing it in a way where he's not sugarcoating anything. He's not trying to make it appear, sound appealing. He's not trying to make it sound like, oh, yeah, it's going to be easy, you know, and you're going to get like a benefits package too. 
Like he's he's telling them this is hard and you have to choose because if you choose to be my disciple, here's the kind of life you should expect, which is why I don't understand like when people believe in the prosperity gospel, it's just th- it's not in there at all. He's saying if you want to if you want to follow me, are you willing to forsake everything? Are you willing to bear your cross? Are you willing to hate anything that separates you from me, even your own life to even fight against your own flesh? and your desires in order to follow after me. So sometimes we make such a statement, you know, just like the people are saying, we will serve the Lord for he is our God. Do you even know what you're saying when you say that? Like think about it first and then decide, like how is it that I choose to live? Because if I don't really think about it and I think it's just kind of like an easy thing, I will not structure my life in a way that brings me success. You know, like someone who really tries to live this discipleship life that Christ is speaking about, like you have to think about like, okay, how am I going to live? Like I have to live in an intentional way, like in a in a deliberate way, not just like a I'll just deal with things as they come kind of way, but in a deliberate way, in a planning plan, you know, like, like, like I'm planning my my life ahead of me and, and my choices ahead of me in order to succeed. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. Like Joshua is questioning. Are you really serious about what you are saying that you're going to do to serve the Lord? Are you really ready and are you really faithful, especially after I am gone, that you will continue to serve God? Right. If you choose to live in sin, God is not going to uh, save you. If you choose to live in sin, God is not going to come and rescue you. And we see this exactly what happens in the next book, in the book of Judges. It's like one season after another of the people falling into sin. And then God allowing them to be captured by their enemies and oppressed by them. They crying out to God. God choosing a judge who's going to come and lead them out. And then the whole cycle, you know, keeps kind of repeating again, like a cycle of sin and repentance, sin and repentance, um, really for the rest of the whole life of the people. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness to us. For, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So it's as though that stone, like hearing the presence and the, all the commandments of God, will become like a memory, a memorial, to remember the covenant that the people are making, that they will continue to follow God. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. 
Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of the ground of ground which Jacob had brought, bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance for the children of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. They buried him in the hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. So these things happened here at the end. Joshua died and he was buried. The bones of Joseph, which they took from Egypt when they left Egypt, they also buried them, and also Eliezer, the priest, the son of Aaron, he also um, died and, and was buried as well. So this is the end of the book of Joshua, uh, and, um, and God willing, next time we will start a new book from the New Testament. I haven't chosen the book yet. Um, if anyone is interested to hear the continuation of this, we already had studied the book of Judges, so it's on the YouTube channel. Um, if you want to, um, to to hear kind of the continuation of this story, okay. Does anyone have any comments, questions? Hmm? And SoundCloud and many other podcast-related websites. <laughs> okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We thank you for allowing us to study your Holy Scripture and to see, O Lord, how faithful you have been with all of your people throughout history. We ask, O God, that you grant us a desire to love you, to follow you, to submit to you, to follow your commandments, and to see, O God, how much you care for us and are willing to sacrifice for us. Do, O Lord, what is good for us, even if that thing is difficult for us to experience or to accept, but give us faith and peace, and do not let us be anxious for let us to know, O Lord, that you are with us in all things. Treat us, O God, O Lord, according to your mercy and not according to our sins. And help us, O Lord, always to see your goodness and come to you, O Lord, in a spirit of repentance, seeking forgiveness from you for the salvation of our souls. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And, and also, also with, with your spirit. spirit.